0: There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in
1: person. Our speaker tonight is the president of Christendom College in Front Royal, Virginia. He received both his licentiate and doctoral degrees in ascetical and mystical theology from the Angelicum in Rome. In 2002, Dr. Timothy O'Donnell was appointed a consultant to the Pontifical Council for the Family by Pope John Paul II. He's a uh, Knight Grand Cross of the Equestrian Order of the Holy Sepulchre of Jerusalem, a frequent lecturer for EWTN. Dr. O'Donnell is also on the Board of Advisors for the Institute of Religious Life, the the Cardinal Newman Society, and I would say most importantly, the Institute of Catholic Culture. He has published two books, The Heart of the Redeemer and Swords Around the Cross. They reside in Stevens City, Virginia. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Timothy O'Donnell.
2: Thank you. Good to be with you all you. on this blustery, beautiful November night, right? Don't you think? It's good to see so many familiar faces. But to talk to you about the reign of Christ the King, Even we used to talk about the social reign of Christ the King, I'd like to start off with a quote from Evangelii Gaudium by Pope Francis. And all I ask you to do is to just prayerfully reflect with me on what he has to say. And I'll try to bring out why this is pertinent for our discussion this evening. Holy Father writes, In some places a spiritual desertification has evidently come about as a result of attempts by some societies to build without God or to eliminate their Christian roots. In those places, the Christian world is becoming sterile and it is depleting itself like an overexploited ground which transforms into a desert. In other countries, violent opposition to Christianity forces Christians to hide their faith in their own beloved homeland. This is another painful kind of desert. But family and workplace can also be a parched place where faith nonetheless has to be preserved and communicated. Yet it is starting from the experience of this desert, from this void, that we can again discover the joy of believing. It's vital importance for us, men and women. In the desert we rediscover the value of what is essential for living. Thus in today's world there are innumerable signs often expressed implicitly or negatively of the thirst for God, for the ultimate meaning of life. And in the desert people of faith are needed by the example of their own lives who point out the way to the promised land and keep hope alive. In these situations, we are called to be living, sto- living sources of water from which others can drink. At times, this becomes a heavy cross, but the Holy Father continues. But it was from the cross, from His pierced side, that our Lord gave Himself to us all as the source of living water. Let us not allow ourselves to be robbed of this hope." Isn't that a beautiful quote? And I think that kind of captures where we are in our country. But if you talk about the kingship of Christ, the social reign of Christ, or building the civilization of love, uh, this can be a problem for some people. But it's an honor to be with you tonight here at the Institute of Catholic Culture, one of my favorite spots on the planet, wherever you are gathered to discuss the faith. I love being here and being with you to reflect upon this topic, which can be misunderstood, oftentimes can be neglected, and sometimes denied. Our Holy Father, Pope Francis, uh, just like his predecessors in his writing, says it's very clear we are in the midst of a grave crisis, a crisis affecting faith in the church, and since the church is affected, it's also affecting the world in which we live in. Now, all of us here tonight, as believing committed Roman Catholics, want to, to use the old Latin expression, sentire cum ecclesia. We want to think with the church. Now, there are many in our world, sadly, and some in our church who would raise even objections about the thought of Christ the King, or talk about the social reign of Christ. Because we live in polite society, right? But anyway, uh, it is the solemnity and the church bids us reflect on the kingship of Christ. But some will say to speak of social reign, of kingship, of monarchy, it's outdated because this is an age of democracy, it's an age of egalitarianism, and the concept of monarchy and reign and social kingship is hopelessly medieval in tone. I kinda like middle ages, but anyway. (laughs) Such a term also smacks of authoritarianism which demands obedience in an age like ours, which extols freedom and diversity, as the highest and the greatest good. Also, does not the concept of the social reign of Christ smack of a kind of triumphalism, the triumphalism that was rejected by the Second Vatican Council? And of course, it's interesting, sometimes we hear these voices raised in our own church. But let's look at what Holy Mother Church teaches us. And this is one of those instances where I think in order to go forward, sometimes you have to look backward to see how you got where you are. So I'd like to look backward in order we can go forward. Are you with me tonight? Yes. All right. Okay. At the dawn of the 20th century, Pope Leo XIII wrote an encyclical called Annum Sacrum, introducing the holy year 1900. And in that encyclical, He entrusted the entire human race to the Sacred Heart, consecrated the entire human race to the Sacred Heart of Jesus. We just did that out of Christendom today. We added the Immaculate Heart of Mary also, consecrated the whole college community to the Sacred Heart and Immaculate Heart. And it's an important thing to do. He said that was the greatest act of his pontificate, when he consecrated the human race to the Sacred Heart of Jesus. Now, in that encyclical, he begins by stating boldly that we all owe allegiance to Jesus Christ. Everyone on the planet owes allegiance to Jesus Christ, the Supreme Lord and head of the human race. And the Pope says he reigns. And he says he reigns over all Catholic nations, over all who are duly washed in the waters of baptism. That means all Christians, not just Catholics, anyone who's received a valid baptism comes under the reign of Christ. And then also, he says, over all deprived of the Christian faith. And therefore, the entire human race is under the power of Jesus Christ. Why is that? The Pope says, first of all, because he is divine. He's the only begotten of the Father. Consubstantial with him. As we all said at Mass today, when we did the Creed, he is God from God, light from light, True God from true God. He's God. He is divine. Therefore, as God, He exercises sovereign power over everything in the church and everything that is in our world. And the Holy Father teaches us that He reigns in two ways. First of all, we've already looked at by natural right as the Son of God. He's the Son of God but also, secondly, by an acquired right, since he gave himself for the redemption of all mankind. He reigns, therefore, not only over Catholics and those who have received Christian baptism, but all men individually and collectively, even if they don't know it, because he is king, he is Lord. This sovereign power of Christ, according to the pontiff, is exercised by truth, justice, and above everything else, by love. It's a reign of charity. The Holy Father then stated how pleasing to our Lord would be this voluntary consecration to his heart. Can I just ask, how many of you have made a consecration to the Sacred Heart sometime in your life? Okay, how many have not? Oh boy, we should do it tonight, except I didn't bring the prayer with me. Dang it. Anyway. But if you go to our website, I think you can find the prayer. It is a great thing to do in your home, in your business, wherever you are. And we'll talk more about that. So he thought this would be most pleasing, to show our acceptance of his authority over us. Now, this act of consecration which he ordered and asked the entire Catholic world to participate in, this was 1899, getting ready to go into the 20th century. He said, if we did this, these are some of the benefits. First, it would help Roman Catholics to increase and strengthen their faith and love. Whenever we consecrate ourselves to the heart of Jesus, it strengthens our faith and love. Secondly, he says, among Protestant Christians, it would increase the flame of charity. Now, isn't that interesting? This is before the ecumenical era. But the power of intercessory prayer, if we give ourselves to Christ, does everyone benefit from that? Yes. Because it's all part of the mystical body, even those who are imperfectly united. Share in that spiritual benefit. So it'll strengthen the flame of charity. And then 30 says, pagans will bring be brought closer to faith and holiness through that act. And they will come to honor God as they ought to and hopefully win everlasting happiness in heaven. And isn't that what we want for everybody, right? That's the end game. Everyone makes it to heaven, because that's what we're made for. Remember the old Baltimore Catechism? Why did God make you? To know Him, to love Him, to serve Him in this life, that we might be happy with Him for all eternity in heaven. Right? Holy Father then concluded by expressing his deep concern about a policy which was being followed at that time, which resulted in a wall being raised between the church and civil society. Sound familiar? That's back in 1899, a wall being raised between the church and civil society. And so he goes on. There's an effort to exclude religion from having a role in public life. We heard about that? Two things you're never supposed to talk about in polite society, what are they? Religion Religion and politics. You know what the two most important things are in social life? Religion. Religion and politics. So why aren't we talking about them, all right? And so he says the result, this is the result of that wall going up. Right? Well, they talk about, oh, freedom of worship, but they won't talk about freedom of religion. Oh, you can do what you want in your church and your synagogue or your mosque, but don't ever manifest it publicly. All right? So the result is that sacred and divine law are disregarded. No one ever makes reference to sacred or divine law, the law of God. And then he goes on to say, therefore, people are giving themselves up to their passions and finally wear themselves out by an excess of liberty. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Having so much fun, you're exhausted by the whole thing. You become fatigued. You become bored. You become tired because you're abusing good things. And then in that jaded sense, you go off and seek greater distortions of the good. And that's a serious problem. The Pope then says, evils press us on every side. Jesus Christ alone can save us for there is no other name under heaven given to us by which we are saved. Only Christ alone. So he says, we've gone astray and must return to the right path. Darkness has enveloped our minds. The gloom needs the light of truth. Death has seized us, but we must lay hold of life. Sounds kind of like John Paul, doesn't it? Death has seized us and we have to lay hold of life. And then in a beautiful, powerful way, imagine this at the beginning of the 20th century, this is what he says, making a reference to the emperor Constantine. When the church in the days immediately succeeding her institution was oppressed beneath the yoke of the Caesars, a young emperor saw in the heavens a cross, which became at once the happy omen and the cause of the glorious victory that soon followed. And now today, behold, another blessed and heavenly token is offered to our sight, the most sacred heart of Jesus, with a cross rising from it and shining forth with dazzling splendor amidst flames of love. In that sacred heart, all our hope should be placed, and from it the salvation of men is to be confidently sought. Isn't that beautiful? That's how we ushered in that century. And he says, peace will only come when all men and women acknowledge the empire of Christ. But look back at our 20th century. Look back at the bloodiest century in human history. People did not listen to the voice of the vicar of Christ. It was an age of an apostasy. People did not listen, beginning with the horrors of World War I. Mustard gas, new technologies, new types of warfare, where men were told to get up out of a muddy trench. And you had thousands machine gunned down to go 10 yards in the mud and dig another trench. And this went on year after year after year after year. At the same time the Communist Revolution breaks out in 1917 one of the most horrible forms of tyranny and evil the world has ever seen. But let's move forward after World War I to yet another pope and another encyclical. The year is 1925. We're in the midst of the roaring 20s, flappers, all those sort of things going on. The pope is Pius XI, paparazzi. He writes an encyclical called Quas Primas. And this is a very important encyclical for us because it's in that encyclical that he establishes the Feast of Christ the King. It began in 1925, the liturgical feast that we celebrate today. And in that encyclical, the Holy Father said that the evil of secularism, sound familiar? (laughs) has spread and now a greater part of mankind has banished Jesus Christ and his holy law from... Now notice what he says. From their lives, from their families, and their public affairs. See the steps? From their lives, from their families, then from their public affairs. Which means if it's going to come back, if we're going to restore order, you know where it has to start? In the reverse of the same order. In our lives then after our lives, in the lives of our families, and only then can you bring order back to civil society. But it has to start with us, what we're going to do. The Holy Father states that the evil of secularism is spread in such a way, and then he goes back and he restates the teaching of Leo Thirteenth that Christ rules over us by right of birth. He's the Word, the Creator. And also, interestingly, he says, by right of conquest. Isn't that an interesting word? By right of conquest, because why? He's our savior. He is our savior. He is our redeemer. So it's important to remember that the creation and the redemption are both acts of love, right? The act of creation bringing everything into existence, giving us our life, our being, the world in which we live in, that's an incredible act of love. And of course Christ through his redemption is an act of love. Our greatest saints and our greatest poets have always seen this, that creation and redemption, those two facets upon which the Catholic mind has always moved, are great acts of love. Would you forgive me if I quoted an Irish poet to you this evening? (laughs) you kind of thought that might happen, all right? If you don't like Irish poets, then hopefully you have a good love of penance and you can offer it up. (laughs) Joseph Mary Plunkett, who married Grace Gifford in Kilmainham jail, wrote a beautiful, beautiful poem in which he captures the beauty of the creation and redemption woven in as a Catholic looks at the beauties of nature. And it's a beautiful little poem and he writes, I see his blood upon the rose and in the stars the glory of his eyes. His body gleams amid eternal snows. His tears fall from the skies. I see his face in every flower. The thunder and the singing of the birds are but his voice, and carved by his power rocks are his written words. All pathways by his feet are worn. His strong heart stirs the ever-beating sea. His crown of thorns is twined with every thorn, his cross is every tree." Isn't that beautiful? Secularism doesn't like that kind of poetry, doesn't like that type of thinking. It's too religious, it's too Catholic. But what are the effects of this secularist thought, this wall that has been rising up between the church and civil society? The Pope gives us seven in his encyclical. And this is where we get the feast from, so I want to spend a little bit of time on it. Seven points. First, he says, the first fruit of secularism, Christ's rule over mankind is denied. He has no rule. He's irrelevant. Secondly, the church's right to evangelize is denied. Can't evangelize. That's hate speech. Hate speech. Third, the Christian religion is made equal to other, what he calls false religions, and is lowered to their level. In other words, a type of syncretism that all religions are the same. There is no real difference. As long as you believe and you believe sincerely, it doesn't matter what you believe. But we know that that's not true. That's not true at all. Fourth point, the Catholic religion is made subject to the civil power. The patriotic church. Talk to people in Vietnam or in the Sudan or in Iran or even here in our country to a certain extent. All right? Fifth point there's an effort to substitute a vague natural religion for the truth of the religion of Christ. Sort of like New Age. You know, no one wants Catholicism, no one wants Christianity, but they want spirituality. Everyone's got spirituality but faith is a very different kind of thing. Point six he says, governments can do without God and even promote irreligion and disrespect for God. Making fun of people who are good, who are virtuous, who openly profess Christian faith can be mocked and can be ridiculed. And then point number seven, a selfish egotism attacks and destroys the family weakening the sense of duty and therefore unity and stability in family life. Those are the seven. So how do you counter all of those things? I think we'd all agree those are serious problems, right? Serious concerns. How do you counter that? He countered it by instituting a special feast honoring the kingship of Christ who reigns in his sacred heart. And he went on in that encyclical to ask that on that day, Christ the King, that a solemn act of consecration would be made by Catholics everywhere to the royal heart of Christ in a spirit of reparation. I remember when St. John Paul the Great made a historic visit to Poland in 1999, went back. He again consecrated Poland and the world. A lot of people didn't hear. There wasn't a lot of press play at that time. Two the Sacred Heart of Jesus, recalling the great consecration that Leo had made back in 1899, consecrated the entire human race in the world once again to the Sacred Heart, and strongly recommended to Catholics everywhere that they consecrate themselves to the Sacred Heart, and that they renew it frequently, at least on an annual basis. He said this act of consecration is a great practice. And so he exhorted all of the faithful to fight with courage always under the banner of Christ the King. Because as Pius XI said in that encyclical, Christ's empire of love extends to all individuals, to every home and to civil society. And so it's important, he says, that national leaders also for their people give public testimony of reverence and obedience to the empire of Christ. Now, I don't expect the current president to lead us all in a prayer of consecration to Christ. But that may seem very strange, but Pedro Pablo Kuczynski, who is the president of Peru, I don't know if some of you saw this, just one week ago, led, consecrated his entire nation, the entire country to Peru, to the Sacred Heart of Jesus. Consecrated his nation. It can be done, it still is done. And in this beautiful act that he did, Uh, He said, by the authority vested in me, I make an act of consecration of myself, my family and the Republic of Peru to the love and protection of Almighty God through the intercession of the Sacred Heart of Jesus and the Immaculate Heart of Mary. And then he went on to implore forgiveness for his own sins, the sins of his nation, the sins of his government. It was a beautiful, beautiful act of incredible humility. So that can be done. Now, when this feast was initiated, normally it was the last Sunday in October. all right. And Pius XI was very much concerned about the rise of totalitarianism, Nazis, etc. And so eventually Paul VI was going to take this and was going to place this at the end of the liturgical year like it is now because secularism continued to become so rampant. But one of the great things that John Paul brought back in Rome as pontiff, a lot of you might not know this, but when the Vatican lost its territory, they used to always have a big Corpus Christi procession. That had not been done for years. Then when John Paul was elected, he says, I want to take the faith back to the streets again. I want to restore this public manifestation in Italy, here in the city of Rome, that Christ is present in the Eucharist. And so what he did, and I, we took a number of our students there, we participate in this. They would meet in front of John Lateran. We just had the dedication of Lateran, remember, not too long ago. I think it was on November 9th, which is, you know, the mother and head of all the churches. And so he would gather and he celebrated this beautiful mass. And then after the mass was over, they had a, a vehicle pull up and on the back there was this carriage. And the Pope put the Blessed Sacrament on an altar surrounded by all of these flowers. And it was such a beautiful thing for the students to see and the people of Rome to see, because then he climbed up the carriage, they assisted him getting up in the carriage, and then he knelt on a pre-do in front of Jesus present in the Eucharist. It was totally cool because you had Christ really present and you had his vicar kneeling, praying to Christ the King and then all of the people of God looking at Jesus looking at the vicar and wanting to imitate them and then we began to follow him. And he went down the Via Merulana, this beautiful street in Rome, and everywhere all the doors of the buildings were open, tapestries were hung out, flowers were thrown, and this great procession, singing and chanting the litany of the Sacred Heart, made its way up Via Merulana, and you had the sense that the whole world was acknowledging Christ's presence in the Eucharist, His great gift, and His kingship. And at the end of the Via Merulana, of course, is the great Basilica, Santa Maria Maggiore. And so the woman who gave us Jesus, body, blood, soul and divinity, all right, by her great fiat that she gave to God, we ended up in the front of that basilica and there benediction took place and when it came time for the Pope to bless, you saw everyone in the square hit their knees. And it was it was an unforgettable experience. And that experience has not been lost. They sang Thomas Aquinas' Pange Lingua Gloriosi. But you had the sense of the public manifestation of Christ's presence and his kingship. And it was absolutely beautiful to see and to witness that. That tradition was continued by Pope Benedict and it has been continued by Pope Francis as well. And it's an inspiration to all of us not only on Christ the King, but on Corpus Christi, to not be ashamed to manifest our faith publicly and to acknowledge the reign of Christ and the role that he plays in our life. And of course, this is so important. We can't expect society to acknowledge the kingship of Christ if we don't acknowledge his reign in our own hearts, as individuals, in our own families, if we can't even bring him to our businesses, and to our parishes, this is something that we really do need to do. So many times as Catholics, we sort of pass over the name of Christ in in a type of silence. And to evangelize, of course, in our age, in this pluralistic age, is considered unsophisticated. It's not being broad-minded, it's not tolerant. And of course, that's really not true at all. Um, It's very interesting. Fulton Sheen once said, it's one of my, I love Fulton Sheen and everything he used to preach and I used to keep my sanity when I lived in California by listening to his cassette tapes all the time as I was battling L.A. traffic. But Fulton Sheen once said, and I think it's, it holds even more true today, America, it is said, is suffering from intolerance. It is not. It is suffering from tolerance of right and wrong, truth and error, virtue and evil, Christ And chaos. Our country is not so much overrun with the bigoted as it's overrun with the broad-minded." And so he said, in the face of this broad-mindedness, what the world needs is intolerance. You catch his point. In other words, we need to bear witness to the truth, to the truth of things. Now, many took Pope Pius XI and his encyclical starting this great feast of Christ the King to heart. Many hated its message as retrograde. The Nazis really opposed it fervently. So did the communists. And one of the great signs, the outbreak of the fury against this encyclical and against this feast really manifested itself in the year 1936 during the Spanish Civil War. Our president, Dr. Carroll, our founding president wrote a great book on that. During six months of that year, the outbreak of that war Fifteen bishops were killed, oftentimes mutilated, tortured. More bishops were killed than in any other persecution in the history of the church. Six thousand priests, seminarians, nuns, and monks were martyred, were killed for the name of Christ. Bodies of nuns were dug up, all right, and they were propped up, decomposing corpse in front of churches, mocked ridiculed, spat upon, not even respect. Tabernacles were broken into. Hosts were taken out and were nailed to the walls. Some of them bled, some of them are still preserved in some churches in Spain where the people saw the blood coming from the host and ran away in terror at what they saw. It is estimated that close to 10,000 churches were destroyed and pillaged. Blessed sacrament desecrated. The great statue in Spain of Christ the King, manifesting his royal regal heart. The communists actually sent out a firing squad to execute the statue. We may not think that the feast of Christ the King has any significance, but the Nazis did and the communists did. The enemy saw it as a great threat to what they wanted to achieve, a godless society. And so they went out and they shot this statue up and destroyed it. All of these martyrs died beautifully, forgiving their enemies and their executioners, and of course, crying out before their death, you know what? Viva Cristo Rey, long live Christ the King. One of them who was canonized by John Paul, John Paul canonized a large number of them, We know that he was a priest who died giving absolution because he was struck with a bullet. It went right through his right forearms. He was actually up, I absolve you, sing te absolvo. Bullet went through there and pierced him right in the heart in the act of forgiving. Amazing. John Paul canonized 100 of these people. And lest we forget, Pope Francis just a week ago approved the canonization of four more of these martyrs of the Spanish Civil War. So again, hermeneutic of continuity. There's a great deal of continuity that we're dealing with here. And uh, it's a challenge for all of us to remember our forefathers who were not afraid to die for Christ the King and give their life and witness. We have to remember his first words to us when he was elected Pope. Remember, John Paul was elected back in 1978. I remember I was present in that square with my wife and daughter when he said, paura, <laughs> be not afraid. Be not afraid. Open wide the doors to Christ. And we have to get back to him, back to our king. And sometimes that can mean suffering. You know, there's a story told of a woman who was in a mental institution. And she was so violent with people who came, had such anger and hatred in her soul that she had to be kept in a solitary room with a glass wall, you know, to see, to keep an eye on her, to make sure she wouldn't hurt herself or others. And one nurse who was sort of moved with compassion, seeing this woman, you know, in solitary confinement and isolation behind this glass, actually went in there and went up to her and with, with real sorrow in her voice said, is there anything I can do for you? And the woman looked at her with hatred and just s- struck her in the face as hard as she could. And the woman of course was really flustered and really upset and started to leave and walked out and then she stopped herself. And then she turned and walked back up to the woman and said again, is there anything else that I can do for you? And then the woman began to weep and began to cry, couldn't believe that someone would respond to her that way. And that began that woman's healing process because one woman, open to the action of the Holy Spirit, went back and decided to show mercy. And in many ways, isn't that what God, our God does with us, who so loved the world that he sent his own son. And God forgives us over and over again. Like Pope Francis said, (laughs) we get tired of confessing our sins, God never gets tired of forgiving them, you know? And so even if we say the same thing, he loves it when we come, he loves to show mercy. That's the kind of king we have. That's why we want to proclaim him. That's why we want to honor him. That's why we want to defend him and to proclaim his kingship. We must remember that our king is a crucified king, that our king is a king who reigns from a cross, a sign of hope and love, and a sign that will be opposed, a sign that will be contradicted. Remember what our Lord said, when I am lifted up from the earth, then I will draw all men to myself. And that lifting up on the cross was the beginning of his glorification. Because remember in St. John's Gospel, there are three rungs to that ladder. He's lifted up on the cross. He's lifted up at the resurrection. And then he's lifted up again the third rung at the ascension into heaven. But his glory begins, his reign begins when he's on that cross. That's when he's lifted up and he begins drawing people to himself. And even Pilate, before Pilate, remember when the pagan procurator asked him, are you a king? And the Jews accused him of that. And he could have saved his life by denying it. Could have said, no, I'm not. Remember what he said? Thou hast said it. I am a king. And then Pilate, as the first Gentile to publicly proclaim his messianic kingship, remember what he put on that cross? Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews proclaiming it in the three great cultures of that time in Hebrew, Latin, and in Greek. Everybody saw it and he proclaimed that kingship. And that's one of the reasons why the Jewish leaders objected. No, you should have said he claimed and Pilate said, we don't know the state of his faith, he says, what I have written, I have written. That's a messianic title. He's proclaiming Christ as Messiah by proclaiming him King of the Jews. What I have written, I have written. What a great proclamation. And then as Jesus mounts his royal throne what is the first act of his reign? The first act of that kingly heart as four red rivers begin to flow now in that new paradise as his kingship is proclaimed as he stands naked before the world. A new paradise of mercy and then of course, three hours after the beginning of that rain, there's gonna be another thing that will be opened, another font, the source of those four other rivers that's gonna reveal something to us. What's the first act of that kingly heart as he mounts his throne? Father, Abba, forgive them, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Can there be a greater proof of our Lord's divinity? Forgive them. These people are spitting on him, they're ridiculing him, they're mocking him, they have beaten him, they have scourged him, and he just looks with mercy and love. That's the answer to evil. Evil gets swallowed up in mercy. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Even then, even then, mercy triumphs. How can anyone, when that is presented, with its truth and its beauty, not see the truth of our faith. Who could resist loving such a king? And of course he's dying with two other men, two other men who symbolize humanity. One of them asked to be taken down, the other asked to be taken up. And seeing Jesus suffering so nobly, yet in such pain, one thief looked with the eyes of faith and turns to our Lord Jesus, our King crucified, and remember what he says. (laughs) Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. This man acknowledges that he's a king reigning from a cross. He sees his kingship. What faith? Looking at that, ecce homo, behold the man. What's his crown? His crown is a mass of bloody thorns and the blood stinging and burning his eyes as he raises his eyes on those whom he loves, those who are crucifying their king. His scepter that he holds is actually a bloody nail that's riveted into the wood of the cross. His royal garment, the purple he wears is his torn mutilated flesh. If the shroud is accurate That scourging wasn't limited to 39 strokes, it was an unchaining of demons. He was beaten horribly, front and back. That's his royal garment and his throne is a wooden tree. Unbelievable, he was despised, he was rejected of men. But revealing again what? His royal authority and his incredible love. What does he say? He turns to him and says what? This day, Thou shalt be with me in paradise. Because wherever Christ is, that's paradise. And if we are with Him, we will be in paradise. For us now to get back into paradise, we have to go through a flaming sword, right? There's a cherub guarding Eden. That means there has to be suffering. There has to be pain. And our king was to receive that piercing blow along with his mother who he gave to us to being queen and mother, she would receive the same blow spiritually as Simeon had prophesied in the mystical union of those two hearts. You've all seen the cross of San Damiano, haven't you? Well, I have a daughter who's a poor Claire who pointed out something I'd never seen. But at the bottom of that cross is Longinus. And if you look at the spear of Longinus, You have Mary and John on the side of the cross, and the spear of Longinus is going right through Mary's heart, even though you can't see it because it's behind her, and piercing the side of Jesus. (coughs) All right? Those two hearts so beautifully united. And at this very moment, as our Lord hangs on the cross, you could see in the distance the great temple in Jerusalem. And on that day... When so many lambs were being sacrificed on that day, the great curtain in the temple was rent in two from top to bottom, indicating a divine action. And of course, for the first time for the Jews, remember only the high priest could go into the Holy Holies on the Day of Atonement, had to have a rope tied around his leg just in case he should die, because he's in the presence of the Lord God, and they could pull him out. And he pronounced the sacred name Yahweh. Okay imploring forgiveness for his people. Well, that curtain is ripped in two from top to bottom and the Holy of Holies now is laid bare. And on Calvary, the true Lamb, the new and eternal high priest, the new temple, remember his body, had his flesh torn and opened, and heaven was opened and a new Holy of Holies, not just metaphorically, but really and truly was revealed. And that new holy of holies was that sacred heart, that kingly royal heart of love. And all humanity was now invited to enter into that royal sanctuary. And that pagan Roman centurion who heard him say all of those things, Father forgive them, they know not what they do. You know, Woman behold thy son, son behold thy mother seeing the manner of his death, looked upon him and what does he say seeing the manner of his death when he says, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. What a great thing to be out of the hands of men, back in the hands of the Heavenly Father. Look what we did to him with our sins and why we need to have true sorrow and understanding that sin is a great evil, a great evil, we almost lost that Today it's almost as if everyone's immaculately conceived. No one sins, all right? Yet he dies. The sin, sin must be a great evil to see what he went through and what he endured, all right? But that Roman centurion looks up and seeing the manner of his death, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. What does he say? Truly, this man was the Son of God, truly. This man was the son of God. When I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to to myself. He's already doing it with the good thief, right? And now with the Roman centurion. So you have a fallen wayward Jew. Now you have a Gentile. And even Pilate is the first one to proclaim this incredible power of the cross. You know, in all our lives we speak to one another, we give gifts to one another at Christmas and it's a beautiful thing. At birthday celebration, anniversary, we give gifts. And it's a great sign and it's a great expression of love. And as we come to know each other, we we give greater gifts. But always the last thing that we give is really the most precious thing that we have, you know? And in human relationship this is always true, right? We can give time, sometimes we can give speech, but the most precious thing we have is our heart, right? The core of our being. And we kind of guard our heart, all right? Because that's the most precious thing we have. It's the last thing we give. It's that which is deepest in us, all right? And this is really true in human relationships, right? When a man and woman decide to get married, the last thing they give is they really, when they pledge their troth, they give their heart to each other, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and health, until death do us part. And of course, in a great marriage, it's even after death too, isn't it? Yeah, it keeps going on. Remember, like Jesus said, it's not that you don't have special relationships in heaven. He says you're no longer given or taken in marriage. But that doesn't mean that those special loves don't continue. In heaven, all right, we'll love our children, we'll love our spouse, we'll love our parents, and it'll be a deep and enriched, profound love, and it'll be perfected because it'll all be in Christ Jesus, gazing at the beatific vision. So the last thing we give is our heart, what is deepest in us. And that's what our Lord gave us on Calvary, his royal, loving, wounded, open heart. And what's he saying? Come to me. Come to me, learn of me, for I am meek and humble of heart. Now in his last final testimony, our dear Lord told St. Margaret Mary, and through her tells us, as the world becomes sort of old and cold and tired, and that's why I love this feast, because this really is the end of the year, because you know what we're starting next Sunday? A new beginning. It's gonna be a new year, and it starts over again, And God is never bored with us picking ourselves up and striving again to begin again. So on this feast of Christ the King, we wanna pledge our troth and our fidelity to him that we can begin again in this advent to prepare once again for his coming into our lives. We've been given a great reprieve in our country. There's a great opportunity, not for complacency, but for greater prayer, for greater penance, for a greater fervor, for zeal for souls, to communicate to everyone, like Pope Francis says, to go out to the margins, to reach other people that we normally wouldn't talk to, and not to be ashamed of the name. The name at the mere mention with every knee is supposed to bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue is to confess. That's what we're supposed to do. And there'll be numerous opportunities as we go forward from here. It can be simply going to Starbucks and saying Merry Christmas or God bless you. May God bless you this day. Bring up God. You'll be amazed at the conversations it will start. Oh, do you believe in God? Oh, yeah, I'm a Catholic. Are you a Catholic? Really? And then you start talking about it. You don't have to stand on the street corner. Believe me, Merry Christmas. Have a blessed, may God bless you this Advent season. Oh, Advent, what's that? Oh, these are the weeks in which we, per- so many opportunities at the workplace, by the water cooler, at Walmart, up wherever you end up going, all right? God bless you. <laughs> Merry Christmas, you know. Speak to one another that way. It's so important that we all do this and I try to convict myself with this as well. So that heart which is so in love with men and yet receives so little in return. May one of the fruits of what we're doing here tonight at this Institute of Catholic Culture, let us stand with our crucified King and draw strength from that passion, because what's he doing? He's becking us to his side, to his open side, to his wounded heart, to join him in this battle against evil to win the hearts of men. He died for them. He died for you, for me, but he died for everybody. And everybody needs to come to know that. Let's stand with our Holy Father, Pope Francis, against the culture and the forces of death against this constant effort to demoralize the world, to strip our lives of morality, to strip it of meaning, to strip it of purpose. Let us stand up and defend the truth about marriage, the truth about fidelity, that it's a good and it's a noble thing. Let's talk about chastity, the importance of being a family, and let's talk about defending the innocence of children and avoiding the confusion about transgenderism and all this other nonsense, this sort of temporary insanity that is sort of sweeping the country. And part of the problem is that we as a church have not stood up for what we know is true. He wants us to stand with him and he beckons us to his side to stand with him. You know, Pope Francis wrote a beautiful thing in Evangelium Gaudium. It's one of his best documents and I'd like to share this with you as I sort of wrap this up tonight and we take some questions. And this is a pleading exhortation. So many people are getting caught up in things uh, that are not really essential to our lives right now concerning Pope Francis and it really grieves me. It really grieves me greatly. I've gone back to start reading L'Osservatore Romano from cover to cover because there's so much that he says that is never reported by the Associated Press, the Washington Press, or the New York Times. And unfortunately it never gets spoken. Listen to his words and what he has to say at the end of his apostolic exhortation on the, the joy of the gospel. This is what he says, and he's speaking to all of us tonight. I think one of my roles as a theologian is not just to share with you what I think, but to communicate what the magisterium of the church is saying. What does the church want? Listen to Pope Francis, let him speak to all of us tonight. I invite all Christians everywhere at this very moment to a renewed personal encounter with Jesus Christ, or at least an openness to letting him encounter them I ask all of you to do this unfailingly each day. No one should think that this invitation is not meant for him or her, since no one is excluded from the joy brought by the Lord. The Lord does not disappoint those who take this risk. We come to realize that he is already there, waiting for us with open arms." End quote. Isn't that beautiful? he's already there. All we need do is turn to him and let him work in our lives. So this evening on the great solemnity of Christ the King. As we end this liturgical year, we end this extraordinary jubilee year of mercy, and we prepare now to enter into the great season of Advent. There are graces that God has in store for each and every one of you tonight, or you wouldn't have risked coming out on a Sunday with all the wind and the stormy weather. There's a great grace that he has waiting for you tonight and in this coming Advent. Be open to that and share that with people in your family you might be estranged from, with co-workers, with anyone that God puts in your path. Be open to the work of the Holy Spirit. Let's pledge our loyalty this evening to Christ our King who reigns through his heart. Do everything we can to build a civilization of love through a crusade of love as we continue on in this new millennium after this year allowing the Sacred Heart to reign first in our hearts then to make sure that he reigns in our families by consecrating our families to his heart, in our religious communities, in our parishes, in our schools, all right? and in our places of business. Together we can build a new civilization of love. We can acknowledge his kingship. And we can continue to pray that one day our nation and our world will acknowledge Christ as, as king. May his kingdom come. Praise be Jesus Christ now and forever. Amen. Thank you for listening to me tonight. God bless you. Thank you.
1: What would you do if after this contentious election, you were told that you could come to Thanksgiving dinner as long as you didn't discuss politics?
2: I I would say there's two chances, slim and none. I, 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 no, I look at I mean if you're invited to Thanksgiving, that's sort of family. If you can't get in an argument with family or discuss those yeah. kind of things, then there's a deeper problem there. That's what I would say. Um, so it's not that you have to come over, you know, with uh, you know, wearing a "Make America Great" T-shirt for Thanksgiving supper or something. But I mean, but you know, but you know, I mean, you know, I mean, you can be sensitive to people, but I mean, these these are things that should be discussed, and I think should be openly discussed. Myself, so I would be kind of saddened that there would be sort of stipulations at Thanksgiving saying we you can come, well, we want you can come, but only if you don't do this. Well, you know. You can, try to be, you can try to be respectful if you can, but I'm sorry, those are, those are things that when you come together as a family, you can discuss in a civil way. And I think that's part of the problem we're having is when there's a lack of civility in discourse, even though the issues are very, very serious and very grave, I think it's the greatest divide in our country since the Civil War. I mean, ideologically. I mean, it's not just about levels of taxation we're talking about, it's life and death, it's about unborn babies, it's about marriage, it's about things that are really very fundamental. But I don't think we achieve anything by lack of charity and lack of civil discourse. So I'd I just say I'd, I'd, love, I'd love to come, but can't, can't I just come and we can just be ourselves?
1: All right, my follow-up is this. Uh, I'm under a lot of pressure from my family to go to this thing uh, and not discuss politics. Uh-huh. They don't know me very well. But anyway, what I thought of doing was where my, uh, t shirt that my I have a who's your hero shirt. Jesus is your hero. Okay, you know, yeah. like that. And then it has all the saints on the back.
2: Oh, that's awesome. Talk you about know. Jesus. And then we yeah.
1: won't we won't discuss politics. But that's the ultimate political message, right? There, there. you go. No, that's fine. There you go. That's fine. Yes. Hi, yes, thank you uh, for your talk. Um, I I read the I forget the name of the encyclical I read read that this morning and what uh, stood out was these public processions and you talked about the one in Rome uh, those are gone those are there's well I've never seen one before Mm -hmm. in Peru they 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 do them how could we I mean are those can those come back I mean you know just because there's you know yeah. We could do them anyway. And mm-hmm. who, who would start that? And wouldn't it be the bishops that would start to push for something like that?
2: Yeah, I think it's, it's, it's not something I think we have to wait for sort of like uh, the civil leader of the country to do that because obviously you know Catholics are a minority in the country, but certainly bishops can and have done that. Uh, there have been acts of consecration. We have a national shrine of the Immaculate Conception where something could be done. There could be actions on the part of the bishop. Uh, but instead of just waiting for for the bishop, you could ask, you know, the bishop to do that. There have been dioceses that have enthroned the Sacred Heart. Bishop Louverde did that in Arlington, uh, and I think there were great blessings that flowed to the diocese of Arlington as a result of that. But um, a lot of times, I mean, begin. I mean, you can start small. You can, you know, you can begin with your own home, begin with your own family. But there are numerous opportunities. Uh, Eucharistic processions, especially on the solemnity of Christ the King, are still very common in Mary, many Catholic heresy. I'm sure if you asked your parish priest, could we have a procession? Not just in the church, but to take it outside around a neighborhood, around and mm-hmm. and give that kind of public witness. Mm-hmm. I know out a Front World, Father Fasano out at St. John's, they shut down, they get permission, they go right down Main Street. Yeah. You know, and it's beautiful. And people, what's that? Oh, my gosh. Oh, well, it's a Eucharistic procession. It's a beautiful way to kind of take it out to the streets. And it's a very traditional form of piety, but something very close to Pope Francis's heart is always saying going out to the margins, you know, reach the people that haven't been reached yet. There's no finer way than to take Jesus out there. Now, they do this in Rome, but I think we can do a lot of those type of things here in the United States. And even with the secularism, even think what you can do as a family. Uh, You know, like for example, they're banning, uh, you know, creche scenes in public places and town squares and things like that. Well, if every Catholic family put a creche in their front yard, It would be awesome. You know, put a Blessed Mother out there. Do something. You know, think, think creative of ways that we, that we can do something. Maybe in place at work, unless someone's going to, you know, become neo-Nazi about that, but have a little crush there. <laughs> but wherever you can. But there are numerous opportunities, especially already in place like for the Feast of Corpus Christi. We had a procession out at the college today. It was very cold, so we kept it short. I think we did a Divine Mercy Chaplet procession. Uh, so sort of like a little five-minute, you know, around. But then people driving by, you take it out. On the and people see that. So that bearing of public witness, uh, the same type of thing can be seen, you know, just praying a rosary in front of an abortion clinic, you know, when you can be mocked real, but just saying, this is an important issue and I'm not going away, you know, but you do it in a beautiful, joyful way. We just had a mega shield. We went to a, a Planned Parenthood facility in Maryland. We had about 250 students go out there and, you know, some people are supportive, but other people, you, you know, you people are sick or you get other things. But, you know, I just realized, ah, oh, Great. You just say You just respond with the Hail Mary. God bless you. you know? Does that answer? I hope that answers a little bit. But yeah, there could be more processions. I think Mary likes processions. Wherever she appears, she let processions come hither and let's build a church. She always seems to want that sort of thing. So yeah, I think it would be great to have more of that public manifestation of faith. And that includes even certain things like, you know, the old you know, Friday fast from meat, abstaining from meat and things like that where little things that make you seem you a little different from everybody else. It gives you a great chance to manifest. Holy days of obligation, making it to mass, you know, and, and that type of thing and sharing that. I, I found actually talking to a number of business people that when you do that, people are very respectful of that. Not, they don't get angry. They don't get upset. If you say, "Could I work and I'll work another 40 minutes late? Could I come at a little late?" It's important for me to get to mass in my church. It's a big fee. Oh, really? What is it? Well, that's, you know, it's, you know. But but having the courage to to do those things, be a little uncomfortable sometimes. Yeah. Do the Eastern rites of the Catholic Church celebrate Christ the King, and do they do it in the same way? If they do, or do they do it on a different date? I I was looking at their readings, and I didn't see that in the Maronite readings that I read today? That's a really good question and I'm gonna confess my ignorance. I know that as far as Christ the King and the kingship of Christ, all Christians celebrate that. Even our Protestant brothers and sisters, whether they do it on the exact same calendar day that we do, I, I confess ignorance. I don't know, someone else here might actually, might have a better, yes? Yeah, uh, we do that on in August, end of August, when we start new year in Melkites, okay, end of August.
0: I was just wondering if, if, was it Pope Pius X that consecrated the whole world?
2: That's Leo thirteenth. Okay, Leo
0: thirteenth. Why do separate nations need to do it or families do it or, you know what I'm saying? If we were all consecrated? Oh yeah. To the sacred heart.
2: Well, all those people are dead now. Well, I don't to know that. <laughs> but it's 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 see, consecration properly understood. It's not something you do just once. And a lot of people, like even in terms of the home enthronement, misunderstand that. Like when you enthrone Christ, this is a change. You acknowledge his reign over your family. That becomes a prayer spot for your family. You do your morning offering and that's something that should be renewed on special occasions like on a First Friday, on Christ the King, on the Solemnity of the Sacred Heart, on the feast day of Margaret Mary. It's You live a consecration. There's a number of good books you can get that deal with that. One by Father Francis Larkin called Consecration and of course Michael Gately, who's written all these great books on divine mercy and, and Mar- beauty of Mary and consecration goes into that. But it's, it's a commitment to a way of life, and like everything else needs to be renewed. Just like if you're married, you're not gonna run around saying your marriage vows all the time, but on anniversaries, it's a good thing to do that sort of thing and to renew that. So you
0: don't need to bring a priest in to-
2: yeah. No, as a matter of fact, no. You, it's great to have a priest, but home enthronement can be done by lay people. The father is the natural priest in the home, and the, and symbolizes Christ. The woman in the home symbolizes the Church and the fecundity of the Church. And there are special blessings that you can give to your children as you know, as a father and as a husband, and same thing for the wife as well. And we don't want to neglect the important role of grandparents. Especially with the collapse, the difficulty, a lot of marriages, grandparents have a crucial role now. And Pope Benedict saw this clear. As a matter of fact, one of our meetings on the Pontifical Council of the Family was totally devoted to grandparents. Because of the divorces, the separations, the brokenness in marriages, grandparents can really help grandchildren to weather that because they still bear a witness to a solid, unified relationship and show that type of thing is possible. It's important psychologically, spiritually, and many, many other ways. So even if your kids are grown, grandparents can still enthrone their home and invite their children to see that, and that can be an impetus for the children to do likewise, okay? So it's a way of life. It's a commitment to a way of life, not just a one-time event. Yes?
0: Dr. O'Donnell, could you speak or give some guidance or advice on um, balancing naturalness with bringing these uh, sort of topics into the public sphere or with Say you? Say this now again. Nat- like the idea of naturalness, um, uh, like, um, like Jose Maria Escrivas speaks a lot on um, being natural um, with uh, when evangelizing and oh I that, see does that question make sense yeah yeah I, th- uh. I
2: think I think like you want to be CNN not the news network you mean Catholic and normal is that what you mean yeah okay that's that's what I think all right so anyway sorry it's it's being silly all right but it's Sunday night who may? All right, so anyway yeah I think part of the thing is we don't have to get on a street street corner and be talking Jesus all the time you're not going to get a hearing sometimes that'll turn people off but i mean look in your own heart where the opportunities are if it's a beautiful day of course i like i like rain too so that's a problem but i mean <laughs> but if it's a beautiful day just hasn't god hasn't the lord given hasn't god given us a beautiful day you know, or when you tr- even transact anything in business, thank you so much. God bless you. You're at the grocery market. There's so many times where gratitude can be expressed. Beauty of a day, uh, beauty of the season. Someone's working on a flower display at the Martin's Market. That is a beautiful job. Thank you. God bless you for making that beautiful. A butcher cutting up meat, you know, trying to sell meat to family, you know. Oh man, you did a nice job, you know, that, that, that meat I bought, that, that was really delicious. Thank you for what you do. God bless you for that, you know? And they're just, it, it's just these little things. And a lot of times, even whether it's Merry Christmas or God bless you, that was a great cup of, that's the best cafe latte or the best salted caramel I've had. God bless you, you did a great job on that. Oh, thank you, God bless you too. I says, oh, you know him, don't you? Yeah, I do. You know, I mean, you know, there's lots of ways where you can bring it up that are just natural. But I mean, the best thing is just be yourself. And, you know, if you practice the presence of God, that God is with you all the time during the day. He's not just, you know, he's in the church in a special, super present way. But he's with you all the time. If you have the sense like you're driving with him and you're talking to him and you're spending time with him, then you're not going to leave him right? And if we remember that we see him in our brothers and sisters, then when you meet, you know, like C.S. Lewis used to always say, you've never met a mere mortal. (laughs) Everyone you meet has an immortal soul and is destined for the beatific vision, God willing, all right? And it could, you never know these, what Chesterton called tremendous trifles, little things but the world's trying to push God away. Even when someone sneezes, God bless you. You know, don't say bless you. We well, even bless you, Well, I'll take that, you know, but you know. But there's so many opportunities. God bless you, do you need, do you need a Kleenex? You know, just act, holding the door, doing this. You see a mom with, a, with kids, you know. Beautiful baby. God bless you, what a beautiful family. God bless you, you know. You see a guy from the US military. Thank you for your service. God bless you. All right, thank you for your sacrifice. And God bless you and God bless our country, you know, and it just conversations happen naturally that way. But Christmas is a huge time because believe me, people are lonely and there's a hunger. Despite all the shouldn't say it, shouldn't, they're, even the merchants are recognizing you should say it because it's good for business. All right. And so they're actually bringing it back again. But say, God, have a Merry Christmas. And sometimes, you know, because it's officially mandated joy. So I say, well, I hope to, but I'm not sure. Oh, really, what's the matter? Something wrong, and and maybe you get into a conversation about some some hurt in their life. And then, if nothing else, maybe you, you can't solve every problem. You say, Thank you. I will remember you in my rosary today, or in my divine mercy chaplet. What's that? Or, you know, whatever. And maybe they'll just remember there was some Catholic that prayed for me, you know, and no prayer is ever wasted. So, you might even turn that person's life around, all right? but you're ambassadors for Christ, you're Catholics, you're all as Catholics through your baptism called to evangelize, so you have gotta be wherever you go, wherever you go, and you'll find it's it's a lot of fun. You get in arguments sometimes, that's okay. (laughs) But most of the time people are happy, you know, because we're made for him, and it's just natural. Homo religionis, man is naturally religious. Any other questions? Uh, I'm sorry. Yes. Yes. On
1: the uh, flyer for today's talk, it mentioned uh, Christus Vinci. Can you just talk a little bit about what that means? And I thought I remember reading, (coughs) it's on an obelisk in St. Peter's Square.
2: Oh, how do you know? You're not far from the kingdom. That's right. (laughs) You should read a Dan Brown book. Just joking. Just kidding. (laughs) Just kidding. Just kidding. (laughs) So you know. That's a good sign. On the obelisk at St. Peter's, that's right, because Sixtus V, when he had that obelisk raised, he moved it from the site. That obelisk is the only obelisk in Rome that never fell down. It's been standing since it was brought, I think, in like the year 30 by the Emperor Gaius, and it stood in the the spina of Nero's circus. And so he wanted, uh, Pope Sixtus V wanted that to be manifested that the church had inherited the spiritual authority of the Roman Empire. And so he put it up there. And then Alexander VII, who did the big colonnade of Bernini, put the, his family, his Chi-Chi star, and put a cross on top of it, indicating that Christ had overcome the forces of paganism and had conquered the world. And so he placed in there a relic of the true cross. When you go into St. Peter's, there's a relic of the true cross in that cross on top of the obelisk. So at the bottom of it, you will see Christus vincit, Christus regnat, Christus imperat. Christ has conquered, Christ rules, Christ reigns. And uh, on the other side, the side facing you, when you go in the square, it actually has a great thing after that where it says, uh, flee ye shadows of darkness and air. The lion from the tribe of Judah has conquered. It's just so triumphant, it's fabulous. And then you look up and you see on the, on the facade of St. Peter's, Christ holding his cross in triumph, hand raised in benediction, and all the apostles up there with John the Baptist holding the symbols of their martyrdom, and it's victory, we win the war, in the end we win, it's great, it's great stuff. St. Peter's awesome. Does that help? Okay, so that's Christus Vincit. Thank you, Dr. O'Donnell. Okay, thank you all, God bless you. Great being with you, thank you.
0: We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ's church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, Pray for us.